Hello, everyone. What is up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. As I mentioned last week, this is the second part of the two-part Robert Wan case. If you have not already, make sure you go and listen to part one of the episode before starting this one. It was posted last week, and you'll definitely want to take a listen before diving in today. So with that being said, let's get right on into it. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. So with this all being said now, let's go back to the interviews that were being conducted directly after the murder. Police had Dylan take a polygraph test, and they did this because in their mind, based on the story that they were getting, Joe and Victor were on the third floor together. They were up in their room, but that meant that no one could really account for Dylan's whereabouts other than Dylan. Obviously, everyone was assuming that Dylan was in his bedroom, but again, that was all just assumptions. So police brought Dylan in for a polygraph test, and there were two questions on this polygraph test. The first was, did you kill Robert? The second was, do you know who killed Robert? And to both of those questions, the polygraph test stated that there was a deception indicated. So that means... Dylan failed the polygraph. Now, as we know, polygraph tests are not admissible in a court of law. I don't need to tell you that. I think you know that by now throughout all of the cases that we have done, but there was deception indicated from his test. And at this point in the investigation and pretty much right from the beginning, police knew and were adamant on the fact that Robert's murder was conducted by someone who was living in that house, whether that be Joe Dylan, Victor, all three of them, two of them, one of them, they didn't know who it was or how many of them were responsible, but they were more than certain based on the evidence that they had that that was the case. Now, ultimately, in those first interviews, police didn't have enough information. They didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest. So all three of the men were let go. Now, interestingly enough, several hours after that first interview was conducted, so now we're just talking about the day after Robert's murder, Joe showed back up to the police station saying that he made a mistake in his interview and needed to change something. He told the detective that in his initial interview, he claimed that the knife was laying on Robert's chest, so laying flat on Robert's chest, and he removed it and put it on the nightstand. However, now he claims that he thinks, thinks 
that the knife was actually still in Robert's body when he removed it and placed it on the nightstand. Now, detectives had several issues with this as a whole. The first issue that they had was that they felt that this key detail was not something that you forget. This event as a whole is not something that you forget. And so for him not to know whether he pulled the murder weapon out of his good friend's body or not was very suspicious to them. Along with that, it felt like an opportunity for Joe to place his fingerprints on the knife. He actually told detectives that if his fingerprints were found on the knife, then that was why. So this new confession, this new change in this detail, whether it be true or not, it really did not help Joe's case because it only raised more questions and more red flags in his direction. But now let's talk about Robert's autopsy. Now, the first thing that the medical examiner noticed was that Robert had what they called three surgical-like defects on the front of his torso. So he had three stab wounds. These were three cuts that, like I mentioned earlier, were almost all identical in width and depth. The uniformity of these cuts showed that during the process of them, neither Robert nor his attacker moved. There was also no defense wounds from Robert, no defense wounds on his hands or anywhere on his body. The medical examiner claimed that based on Robert's injuries, she would assume that this would have been a very bloody scene. However, as we have mentioned, that was not the case. The medical examiner concluded that Robert's cause of death was stab wounds to the torso and that the manner of death was homicide. Something else that the medical examiner discovered was that the three stab wounds to Robert were not immediately fatal and that blood had leaked into his small intestine and that he was alive for a period of time following the stabs. This discovery made police even more suspicious about Robert's death because when thinking about this murder, they thought that there was no way if Robert could control it that he would have not tried to defend himself. For him to sit still so still that all of his wounds are almost identical and for them to be in perfectly positioned places, it seemed impossible. So that was the big question for police now. Why did Robert not move? And this brought in a whole new question and whole new element of this case, which was, was Robert restricted. Now, the medical examiner found no marks of restriction, no ligature marks, no evidence to show that Robert was restrained or tied up in any way. But something they did find on Robert's body was needle puncture marks. These marks were found on his neck, the back of his hands, his chest, his ankles, and the top of his feet. Now, this brought up the question and really made police believe that Robert could have been injected with something, drugged with something, that would have caused him to be paralyzed or not move. According to friends who knew the three men, Dylan, Joe, and Victor, they said that they did often dabble in drugs. This wasn't a lifestyle that they turned away from. It wasn't something that they didn't experiment with. However, surprisingly, after the toxicology report came back, it came back as 
negative. There were no drugs found in Robert's system. Now, there is one thing that Robert was not tested for, and it was because he was tested too late, and that is a paralytic called succinylcholine. Now, this is a general anesthetic that actually goes undetected in the body after a certain period of time. So again, by the time that the toxicology report was conducted, it would have been too late to detect anyways. So that was something that Robert was never tested for. So to this day, we will never know if that was something that was in Robert's system. So now let's go back to the investigation. More specifically, what police found when they went through the house on Swan Street. Three days after the murder, police and detectives went through the house on Swan Street to see if there was any evidence or any clues that they could find. And something that did stand out to them was in Dylan's bedroom. Inside Dylan's bedroom, police found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different BDSM sexual devices. We are talking whips, chains, gags, handcuffs, gas masks, torture devices, electrical devices, spacer parts, any and everything you can imagine. And Dylan had all of these devices in his bedroom. Now, obviously, I think as a disclaimer, I think it's important to note that just because police found those things, it doesn't automatically mean anything. You know, just finding those devices is finding those devices doesn't mean, you know, that Dylan is responsible or that the three men did this or whatever. It definitely raised a lot of questions though. And it started to spin the wheels on a couple different theories. And police had asked the medical examiner to conduct a rape kit on Robert. And when she did that, the rape kit showed that there was evidence of semen on and inside of Robert's body. Now, even though this was absolutely horrifying and added another terrible, terrible element into this case, it felt like a breakthrough for police because now they had DNA. You would think all they would have to do is match the DNA to one of these three men and it would be case closed. However, you can imagine police's shock when they discovered that the DNA that was found on and inside of Robert's was his own. Let me repeat that. The DNA, the semen that was found on Robert as well as inside of him was his own. Now, as you can imagine, police were absolutely shocked when they heard this. It's it's something that they couldn't wrap their head around. It's something that was that it was something that quite simply did not make sense. Now, even with these findings of his DNA, the medical examiner found no signs of sexual activity or forcible sexual assault, which just added to the confusion. Now, I do want to say that police, when they heard this, it struck a chord with them because they remembered seeing something, a device, in Dylan's bedroom. One of the devices that they had found was an electric stimulation device, which was designed, the one that Dylan had, was specifically designed to force someone to ejaculate. So police saw this, saw this device, 
that Dylan had and thought, could it be possible? Could this explain why Robert's own semen was found on and inside of him? Could this explain that? Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, when looking into all of the men's computers and cell phones, they found multiple pictures, pornographic pictures on Dylan's computer of Dylan and Joe specifically. It became very clear to police in this point that even though Joe, Dylan, and Victor all lived in this house together, they claimed to be a family, they claimed to all be in this relationship together, it was very clear that the relationship was a little bit different than it portrayed. The relationship now shifted and seemed as if it was Joe and Victor in one relationship and Joe and Dylan in another. Now, when police found these pictures on Dylan's laptop, this is when they saw all of the devices that they found in Dylan's bedroom being used and put into action. There were countless of these devices in these pictures. And when looking into Joe's laptop, police also found a BDSM website on Joe's computer where he did have an account and went under a different username, an alias, if you will, called Kuluket, C-U-L-U-K-E-T. Now, at first, police thought that maybe this alias was referring to ketamine for the ket on the end of the alias. However, there's been no direct link to that. But since these men were known to experiment with different drugs, police thought it wasn't a far stretch. Now, on Joe's profile on this BDSM website, he listed some of the things that he was interested in. These things included electro-torture, masochism, master-slave, sensory deprivation, humiliation, pain, caging, and confinement. Now again, just as a disclaimer, liking these things does not mean that you're a murderer or not mean that you are going to kill someone or that someone is going to kill you. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is police were starting to connect the dots here based on the evidence that they had. So based on all of this information that they're now getting, police are starting to wonder if there was something more going on on this particular night between Robert and these three men. Clearly, there was some sort of sexual act that occurred this night, and police were starting to wonder if this was something that Robert consensually agreed to 
or not. However, according to all three men, they claimed that Robert and them never had any sexual interaction together. All three of them claimed that Robert was straight. He's always been straight. There has never been a time where Robert has explored his sexuality or had been interested in it. It was just out of the question, the way that they were describing it. It was almost insulting to them that police would ever ask this question. Now, something else, just a small detail that was noted in this investigation was that when Robert's body was found, he was clothed. He had his pants on, his pajama pants, and a gray t-shirt that he always wore. The stab wounds went through the t-shirt. So Robert was wearing the t-shirt while he was stabbed. Along with that, Robert was also found wearing his mouth guard. Now, according to his wife, Kathy, Robert's nighttime routine worked like clockwork. He took a shower, he brushed his teeth, he put in his night guard, he put in his mouth guard, and he went to bed. Now, this brought up the question of why would Robert's mouth guard be in his mouth if he was consensually agreeing to some sexual act? It just didn't seem likely. Now, something that was quite unsettling for everyone who knew Robert, all of Robert's friends, all of Kathy's friends, was that after about a week of the investigation, Joe, Dylan, and Victor all showed up to Kathy's doorstep. They asked Kathy if they could speak to her privately in the basement, and Kathy agreed. In the beginning of this investigation, in the beginning of Robert's death, Kathy was actually seeing Dylan, Joe, and Victor as victims themselves. Kathy knew how close Robert was to Joe in particular, but also all three of these men. She couldn't believe in her heart and in her mind that they would ever do something to harm Robert. So from the beginning, in the beginning... Kathy was very much on these men's side. She had their back. She defended them. She said that it had to have been an intruder. Robert was murdered by an intruder. And about a week into the investigation, after Kathy had spoken to police several times at this point, Joe, Dylan, and Victor showed up to Kathy's home while some of her friends were with her and asked to speak with her privately in the basement. Kathy agreed to this and went downstairs with them to talk. And shortly after, all three of the men left and it is unclear what was said in this conversation however it did seem that joe and dylan and victor were trying to get on the inside of the investigation and see the type of questions that police were asking kathy and again this was because kathy really wanted to see the best in people especially robert's friends no one out of robert's close friends and family wanted to believe that anyone that robert trusted would be capable of something like this now joe did attend robert's funeral and was actually assigned as someone who would carry the casket there's a specific word for it however i'm not sure what the word is but he was one of the people carrying robert's casket now, something that was very odd at this funeral was that in the beginning of the funeral, when everyone is lined up to greet the family and offer their condolences for the loss of their loved one, Kathy was at the door greeting everyone. She had a line formed where people were lined up to greet her and offer condolences and sympathy and their respects. But Joe also made his own line at the funeral. So you had Kathy, the wife of Robert. 
the wife of the murder victim standing and saying hi to people and you know having conversation and people are offering their condolences and sympathy and all of that joe for some reason for whatever reason thought it was a good idea for to also stand there at the funeral not next to kathy as like oh i'm here for you and i'm here for support he created his own line his own separate line for people to offer him sympathy and him condolences and everyone who saw this most people i should say who saw this definitely thought that joe was amping up this victim card and this victim mentality during all of this and he definitely made this funeral seem like it was about him again at the time kathy had sympathy for the three men she viewed it as these three men were also victims too so red flags were not raising in her head she simply thought that this was the appropriate and right thing to do Shortly after the funeral, investigators brought cadaver dogs into the house on Swan Street to see if they could uncover any blood. Now, cadaver dogs are specifically trained to uncover skin cells or blood, and when these dogs were brought through the house on Swan Street, they hit on two different spots. The first spot that these dogs hit on was the dryer of the home, specifically the lint roller of the dryer, which was interesting because this indicated that there could have been a cycle in the dryer that had that had residue of either blood or skin cells. Now, the second spot that the dogs hit at was the back of the house's stairwell drain. Now, even though the dogs did hit on the drain, police were not able to get a DNA sample because when blood mixes with water, it decreases the likelihood of getting a solid DNA sample. So at this point, police decided to change courses and use something called Ashley's Regent. Now, Regent is a blood enhancing chemical. It's similar to luminol. We talked about, you know, the luminol lights and all of that that are supposed to show blood spatter. And Regent is supposed to show any evidence of blood that was wiped away. However, when the experts came in to apply the Regent, they actually did it wrong. And in turn, they completely botched the crime scene and it was unsuccessful in getting a sample and also ruined the chances of ever trying to get another one again so this was a very big miss on the detective's part because this threw away any chance that they had to see if there was blood spatter throughout the house so now let's talk about the murder weapon the knife so the knife was found on the nightstand right next to robert's body when emts arrived and like i mentioned joe had already confessed that he had moved the knife to the nightstand so it would make sense that detectives would find robert's dna on the knife as well as joe's obviously they should find robert's because it was inside robert's body and they should be able to find joe's handprints or fingerprints however when this knife was sent off for a forensic analysis there were some very interesting discoveries made and that discovery was that there were no fingerprints on this knife no fingerprints no handprints no palm prints no fingerprints none of them which would not make sense because if this story went the way joe explained this story to go his fingerprints should be on that knife except for if whatever reason he decided to clean the knife or wipe his fingerprints off of it 
Now, the second thing that was discovered was the fact that the stab wounds on Robert didn't necessarily match the size of the knife blade. The blade itself was actually 5.5 inches, but the length of Robert's stab wounds were anywhere between 4 to 5 inches. This raised red flags because police had a hard time believing that if someone were to stab, why wouldn't they insert the whole blade? Why would they only stop at four inches? There were also white cotton fibers found on the knife that were consistent to the white towel that was found on the floor of Robert's room. Now, this towel is what Joe claimed he used to stop the bleeding when he found Robert. However, that would not explain why the cotton fibers would be on the knife. The only explanation that police could come up for this is if Joe specifically and intentionally took the bloody towel and ran the knife through it. If you, and if you're sitting there asking, well, why would he do that? Why would he take the knife and run it through the bloody towel? Police curated a theory that this was not the knife used in the murder. And because of that, that is how they were able to connect the dots on this theory that it would have made sense if Joe took the butcher, if Joe took the kitchen knife from his butcher block, which was not the murder weapon, and just ran it through the towel to make it appear that it was. That would explain why the white cotton fibers were found on the knife. So you might be sitting there thinking, okay, let's say, let's just say that this isn't the murder weapon. What could have been? Well, this theory gets strengthened when police discover that Dylan had a cutlery knife set in his bedroom. Why was it in his bedroom? I don't know. But it was in his bedroom. And in this knife set, it contained three knives. There was a large knife, a carving knife, and a small knife. And of course, the smaller knife was missing from this set. And to strengthen this theory even more, the blade on that smaller knife is more of a match to the wounds that were found on Robert's body than the knife from the butcher block. But then something new gets added into this case. Three months after Robert's murder, when police are in the midst of their investigation, Joe, Dylan, and Victor all moved away. They all moved to Florida. But three months after the murder, Dylan's lawyer was the one who called police to report that there had been a burglary at the Swan Street house. And it did not take long for police to figure out who was responsible. The person who went in and stole the TVs and other electronics out of the Swan Street house was none other than Joe's brother, Michael Price. It turned out that Michael Price had a key to the home, which was something that Joe failed to tell police in his interviews. But interestingly enough, Michael Price was taking night classes at his college and studying to be a phlebotomist. A phlebotomist is someone who specializes in drawing blood. And Michael had access to a nearby hospital, which also gave him access to different drugs, such as that general paralytic that we spoke of earlier. Earlier, succinylcholine. And coincidentally enough, on the night of August 2nd, 2006, Michael, who had a perfect, perfect attendance record leading up to that point, did not show up for his classes that night. 
which again is just such a weird coincidence. He has perfect attendance. And then on the night of Robert's murder, he coincidentally skips class. Now, Michael's boyfriend at the, now Michael's boyfriend at the time did claim that Michael was at home with him on the night of the murder. And Michael's phone showed that he was not near or at the house on Swan Street. So just take that for what you will. So at this point in the investigation, the police were really at a standstill. Months had turned into a year, and ultimately, there was a press conference. And at this press conference, Kathy made an appearance. And this was actually the first time that she had made a public appearance where she was pleading with the public, but specifically with Joe, Dylan, and Victor. Like I mentioned, up until this point, she had very much been on these three men's side. She had been defending them. However, at this point, her perspective had changed and she truly did believe that they were responsible or at least knew who was. During this press conference, she pleaded with the men to come forward and just to tell the truth. And ultimately... This did not work because these three men kept quiet. Like I mentioned, they moved to Florida. They sold the house on Swan Street. They wanted nothing to do with any of this. However, at this point, the prosecution was pretty adamant that they could finally go to trial with this case. They knew they were not going to be able to get a murder charge because there was not enough concrete physical evidence to prove who was the murderer. It was way harder to convict three men on this because they didn't know who was involved. They didn't know if it was all three of them or just one of them or two of them. They did not know. So instead, the prosecution decided that they had a way better chance of charging these men with covering up a murder. So after a judge reviewed this case and concluded that there was enough probable cause for an obstruction of justice charge, the police were finally able to go forward with arrests for Dylan, Joe, and Victor. Now, they didn't arrest them all at the same time. They wanted to be strategic about it. Reason being is that the police thought if they finally were able to arrest these men, they figured that they would start turning on each other because now they're arrested, things are getting serious, and they need to start talking. However, this plan failed. They initially arrested Dylan thinking it would be strategic, that they could talk to him, that they could, you know, try that they could try and cut a deal with Dylan, but Dylan stuck to his story. He did not change his story whatsoever. So ultimately after that, they decided to just go forward with the arrests of Joe and Victor. After all three of the men were arrested, all three were charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and tampering with physical evidence. The judge on this trial was Judge Lieberwitz, who was a former homicide prosecutor. The trial began on May 18, 2010, and the prosecution was trying to prove that these three men covered up Robert's murder. And for the prosecution, they didn't have to say what the motive was or how it happened. All they had to prove was that these three men covered up Robert's murder. Specifically, they had to prove that there was no intruder, no blood, and that the discrepancies with the knife were real. Now, interestingly enough, the prosecution, so when the prosecution submitted all of their evidence to the judge, the judge actually declined and denied the prosecution from using 
any of the evidence about the BDSM devices that were found in Dylan's bedroom. The reason that the prosecution submitted this evidence was because it strengthened their argument that this could have been a sexual assault gone wrong, and that is why the men felt the need to cover it up. So the fact that the judge has now denied the prosecution from using any of this evidence, that was a huge blow to their argument. Now, five days prior to this trial starting, the defense also filed a motion for the judge to be the one to decide the verdict of the three men, not a jury. So they didn't want a grand jury in this trial. They strictly wanted the judge to listen and make the final decision. The defense claimed that in a murder trial with a jury, seven out of 10 times, statistically, seven out of 10 times, the jury will convict guilty. And because this case was so widely publicized in the media, the defense claimed that they didn't believe they would be getting a fair trial if it was the jury deciding. And ultimately, they got granted that wish. The defense on this team was led by a man named Bernie Grimm. Bernie Grimm was a defense attorney who was very well known and reputable. And according to the media, they had coined this defense team as the million dollar defense team due to the high profile attorneys on this case. Bernie Grimm was defending Joe, attorney Shirtler was representing Dylan, and Tommy Connolly was representing Victor. These were thought to be the best defense attorneys that these men could have hired, and Bernie Grimm was known for winning more not guilty homicide cases over any other practicing lawyer in D.C. Now, on the defense's side of things, they really played into the fact that there was no hardcore evidence to prosecute these men. The defense claimed that the prosecution was taking the easy way out by trying to go after Dylan, Joe, and Victor, and they went even beyond that by saying that the reason that the prosecution pinned this on these three men was because they did not agree with their life choices, did not agree, first off, that they were gay, but also that they were in a three-way relationship, and thought that because of that, they had to have been able to do something like this. They claimed that all avenues that the police and prosecution were going down were simply just theories that they were not able to back up with evidence. And the defense was really honing in on this intruder theory and why it was possible. They talked about the fact that the defense had gone over to the next door neighbor of Joe's, so not the elderly couple, but the people who had lived on the other side of Joe's. And according to them, they And according to them, they spoke with the housekeeper who was sleeping at the house on the night of Robert's murder. And according to her, she claimed that when she woke up the next morning, she walked out to the backyard and saw that the sandbox that this family had in their backyard had a footprint in it. Now, according to this housekeeper, she walked over to the police at Joe's house and told them about her findings. However, according to her, she claimed that the police brushed her off and said that they already knew who was responsible and that they didn't need to come and see it. The defense also demonstrated that it would have been very easy for someone to hop the fence. They demonstrated someone doing so and showed that it wasn't as difficult as the prosecution was making it out to be. They also showed that a possible entryway into the house was through the front door, even if it was locked, because the front door had a mail slot in the center of it, which when you put your arm through, you could unlock the door from the inside. Now, again, I'm not sure how that argument really stands 
defense in this case because it was clear that the back door was left open. However, the defense was trying to argue that it wasn't that difficult for an intruder to enter. Now, to answer the question on the blood loss, the defense cross-examined the medical examiner who conducted Robert's autopsy, who claimed that Robert was missing two-thirds of his blood volume that was unaccounted for. However, the defense brought up a different doctor. They brought up Dr. Lee, who was a medical professional that was actually brought up during the O.J. Simpson trial. Dr. Lee claimed that when Robert was stabbed, he was stabbed through the heart and bled internally, so all of his blood remained inside of his body. Now, when it comes to the knife, remember how I mentioned earlier that there was a knife set in Dylan's bedroom and the smaller knife was missing? Well, during the trial, Dylan's mom took the stand and claimed that she was the one who purchased and sent Dylan this knife kit, and she claimed that she kept the smaller knife for herself. So she has this knife kit, she's mailing it to her son decides to keep one of the three knives and just send him the two knives. And for whatever reason, Dylan decides to keep it in his bedroom. Now, the prosecution definitely emphasized the fact that Dylan's mom could have just been protecting her son because no one ever saw the knife. You know, she didn't bring the knife to the court. So she had just stated that she was in possession of the knife. So now we're at June 29th, 2010. And finally, there is a verdict. The judge read a 38-page document, which included her saying that she did not believe that Robert was killed by an intruder. She also emphasized that none of the men conducted themselves in a way that would show that their friend had just been brutally murdered in their home. Now, she did say that she believed that the knife that was found on the nightstand was, in fact, the murder weapon. And she also stated that she believed that all three men were withholding information about the night itself and about the murder. And this is where things get interesting because this judge claimed that she believed, this is her word, she believed with moral certainty that these three men had been responsible for Robert's death. But when it came to certain evidence and beyond a reasonable doubt, there was not enough there. So surprisingly enough, surprising to everyone, the judge found Dylan, Joe, and Victor not guilty, and all three men were acquitted. So all three of them were free to go. After this trial, after everything, after years of this, all of them, in a split second, were released and free. Now, it didn't end there because Kathy actually did end up filing a $20 million lawsuit. It was a wrongful death lawsuit that she filed against the three men. Now, it was going to go to civil trial, but Joe, Dylan, and Victor all pled the Fifth Amendment and refused to attend nor speak at this trial. And so because of that, Kathy did receive a settlement. However, it has never been disclosed publicly what that settlement was and to this day that is where we are at in this case the case of robert juan has still gone unsolved there has been no justice there has been no closure for robert for his family for kathy nothing but i'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say on my end how I believe in this case, what I believe in this case, I don't think that there's a world that exists that an intruder came into the house that night. It does not make sense. I don't know what happened, but I can almost guarantee that that did not happen. 
I believe that all three of the men, regardless of if all three were involved, I believe that all three of them know what happened. I believe that there is a mountain of evidence that is being withheld by these men. I think that they are all covering for each other. I think that they are all protecting each other. I think that they are going to take this to the grave. And personally, I do believe that these men are responsible. That is just my opinion. I think it also is very weird about Michael, Joe's brother. Do I think it's possible? I mean, the theories here are endless. Do I think it's possible that Michael supplied Joe with this general paralytic that could have that could have paralyzed Robert and then this weird sex act could have gone wrong if that is what happened. Yes, I think that that's possible. Do I think it's possible that just one of them was involved? Yeah, I think that's possible. I think a mountain of theories are possible here, but what I don't think happened is that an intruder entered the house that night. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one. So please let me know in the comments below. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every Wednesday on the podcast and you're not gonna wanna miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.